Well, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that we could gather together and hear from your word. Thank you for the gift of prayer. Thank you for the gift of your Son. And we pray, Lord, now that you would open your word to us, that you would open our hearts to receive you today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are on Palm Sunday, the day that starts the most important week of the Christian calendar, Holy Week. It's a week to slow ourselves down as we hear again of the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. We feel the weight and gravity of Jesus' march toward the cross, and then having contemplated the pain of the cross on Easter Sunday, we truly celebrate the victory of King Jesus. Perhaps it is one of the silver linings of this rather challenging time we are living in. With so much disruption to our normal routines, we have an opportunity to refocus on the things of eternal importance. Holy Week demands this of us. And perhaps this year we can embrace the difference, or to to use a word that a good friend and mentor of mine loves to use, perhaps we can experience the disequilibrium in a new and profound way. And so how do we begin this trek through Holy Week? Well, there actually might be no more fitting reading for Palm Sunday than 2 Samuel 7. Why, why would I say that? It's, uh, it's not usually one of the appointed readings. Why would, we, why would we read this? Well, in part, it's one of the high points of Old Testament history and theology. In, in this chapter, God makes a covenant with his servant David that he would establish David's line forever. On the day we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, it's, it's quite fitting for us to look back to the moment when God promised that he would send his king from the line of David. God promised to David that he would be given a son who would rule forever. And his promise to David gives us an encouraging and, and perhaps even unexpected image of God, that he is a, a humble and wise and gracious Lord. He is a Lord like none before and none since. And so let's begin our time today by looking at the humility of our God. If you have one with you, open up your Bible to 2 Samuel 7, or you could Follow along with the reading in our order of service. Of course, since we're all online, you can always pull up uh, an online Bible on the internet. But let's dive into this passage, 2 Samuel 7, together. Our account begins with David speaking with the prophet Nathan. Now, if you know anything about David's life, you know that it was anything but easy. He fought wars and survived countless threats on his own life, even coming from those who were supposed to be his allies. Now, verse 1 tells us that David is living in his house and that the Lord has given him rest from his enemies. 
a friend of uh, of mine and I, we recently installed a new floor in my dining room. And while that's uh, it's not quite the same thing as going to war together, there were moments where uh, it actually kind of felt like that, uh, especially with my lack of uh, mechanical abilities, shall we say. But we, we stuck to it. We got the floor done. And finally, it was down and we sat together. Scotch in hand, of course. Gotta have scotch in your hand when you're celebrating, right? And we looked at each other. We didn't really say anything. We just sort of took a breath. Happy that we had accomplished what we had done. And this is the sort of image that I, I have in mind when I think of David and Nathan in this moment. Two friends sitting together in peace looking back on the amazing accomplishments of life and enjoying the time together. And it's in this context, in this piece, that David comes up with a great idea. Let's build the Lord's house. I have this wonderful place to live in, and God is living in a tent. It's not right. Let's fix it. And Nathan says, go ahead. The Lord's with you until God steps in and tells them no. Now, to be clear, when, when God says no here, don't read that as a rebuke. The problem is not David's plan. It's just that David's not the right guy to do it. The temple will be built, but, but now is not the time. And listen to God's response, beginning in verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? It's an interesting response. God's response to David reveals something about who God is. We certainly see that God is great. He has acted powerfully in history and most clearly in bringing his people out of Egypt, from slavery out of Egypt. But that's not all we see. We also see his humility. You see, unlike the other rulers or gods of this period, that would demand shrines and palaces to be built so that they might boast in their glory, God doesn't do that. In fact, he, he rejects it. Now look, God is, God's worthy of having the great places built to his glory, and there is certainly a time and a place for, for great buildings. The temple was one of them, and, and one of the reasons we build these, these magnificent churches is so that it reflects God's glory to the world. And so, so don't walk away thinking that, that there's no place for such things. There, there most certainly is. And they can actually be a great aid to, to gospel proclamation. But what God is showing David is that he can have this great temple built whenever he asks for it. But before that, David and all God's people need to see that while these beautiful structures are a gift, God shows his glory not in these structures necessarily, but in his presence 
with his people. He shows his glory in humbling himself to dwell with his people. In verse 6, he points David to this truth by reminding him of the wilderness generation. Right? This was a time for the people to learn to trust themselves entirely to the Lord. And all that time, the Lord lived in a tent. The most humble of dwellings. But he was always with his people. Living with them. Being carried from place to place. Never apart from them. And while he was with them, he cared and provided for them. If you've read through the Old Testament and you know the history of Israel, you know that many of these days were not easy. And yet there was God walking through the muck with his people, not casting them off, though they constantly questioned his goodness and love, but humbly correcting and guiding and steering them and continuing to lead them on. What an encouragement this should be for us, especially as we live through quite a challenging time period ourselves, when all that we have trusted in has been thrown for a loop. Our particular economic and political structures, our, our social structures, our way of viewing ourselves and the things that give us security, all of those things have been brought to their knees in a matter of days. And so this is a perfect time for us to remember that we worship the God who shows his glory by walking with his people. We who worship Jesus, even though we can't be gathered physically together, we still walk with the God who never leaves his people. One commentator said it this way, He is the God who travels with his people in all their topsy-turvy, here and there journeys and wanderings. Do his people live in tents? So does he. Are they a pilgrim people on their way to the land of promise? So he is the pilgrim God, sharing the rigors of the journey with them. What other God would do that? Other gods, false gods, make demands to have the temples and the monuments built so everyone can see just how great they are. We could think of the Caesars who would have the arches built to show their greatness, to remember their, their glory. But that's not how God works. And even God's choice of king shows how different he is and how different he expects his prince to be. God reminds David of his own humble beginnings in verse 8. It says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. God didn't choose David because he looked the part. In fact, Samuel the prophet who anointed David thought David's brother looked more fitting. But the humble God chose the humble shepherd boy to be his prince. And the humble God walked with his prince, delivering him from his enemies and granting him the peace that he enjoys in this moment. Because that's who our God is. 
He is worthy of all praise and honor and glory, and yet he does not act like the rulers of this world who are boastful and full of pride. He is the king who enters into his city, not riding on a stallion, but on a donkey, a beast of burden. He is the king who is not born in a golden palace, but in a small town in the middle of nowhere to a couple who are of no earthly influence or prestige, and who spends his first hours lying in a feeding trough. Our God is a humble king. And our God is a wise king. As we've seen, the problem with David's idea is, is its timing. David and Nathan are resting in David's house, enjoying the peace that comes from a job well done. Since God has given David this peace, surely he too should be able to rest and rest in his house. While God, in his wisdom, knows that the job, as great as it's been, is nowhere near done. Verses 8 and 9, God reminds David of what he has done for him, plucking him from obscurity, making him a great prince, and giving him victory. But look closely at the reading there. Look closely at verse 9 in particular, and you will see a change beginning in the second half of verse 9. The verb tenses change from past to future. I have been, past tense in verse 9a, changes to I will make, future tense in 9b. The point is the work is not done. There's more that's going on here. God has something bigger in mind and a plan, and that plan is about God building David a house, not the other way around. He will build David a dynasty that will last forever. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There's the promise. David has his eyes on the moment. But God has something so much bigger planned. It's because God is not limited as we are. God does not have the blinders up like we do. You see, so often our thinking is blurred by the moment in time we find ourselves in, whether that's times of peace and rest like it was for David or times of struggle and difficulty like so many of us find ourselves in now. And it skews our thinking. It skews our vision. And so we need to ask for God's wisdom and God's vision. And that means we need the humility to acknowledge that we don't have that, that we don't have God's wisdom, and that we need him to reveal his plan and purpose to us. 
Pastor Dale Ralph Davis wrote that this story should expose our need, leading us to cry out for the wisdom we lack, pleading to see beyond the way that seems right, to lay hold of what is good, well-pleasing, and perfect. That is what God's wisdom is. It is good, it is well-pleasing, and it is perfect. And so we need the humility to acknowledge our need for it. Do you see how these two things are working together? Humility and wisdom. God's humility and God's wisdom. David and Nathan's initial response is perfectly in line with what our thinking so often is. It sounds like a good plan, and so let's just charge off and do it. Let's get after it. Because we have blinders up, and we think only about what we need to do for God, forgetting as God reminds David that God is the primary actor in life. And that's a great thing because our wisdom is so limited. We, like David, think the job is done before it's even really begun. And so like David and Nathan, we don't stop to ask God. We assume that since our hearts are in the right place, it must be pleasing to God. And in this specific case, a divine intervention is needed to stop things before they go too far. In response, David and Nathan are humbled and they follow God's lead. Do we have the humility to do the same? To first understand that we lack God, the wisdom of God and ask for his. And when, we show, when he shows us his wisdom, whether that be through scripture or through the godly counsel of, of other people or whatever method he chooses, are we willing to follow? As we look at our days that seem clouded in uncertainty, what a perfect time to seek the will and wisdom of God. To in humility ask him for the way forward and the courage to follow him even if it seems out of step with what he would want. Or with what we would want, I should say. We see that in his humility he walks with his people. And that in his wisdom he has a greater plan than we do. And then we see that in his grace he will accomplish his plan. Look again at his promise to David, beginning in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This portion shows us not just that the promise of God is bigger than David, since David will not be alive to see it. <laughs> But that death itself will not stop the plan from being fulfilled. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is David dying. But the death of even the great king of Israel does not stop God's plan. And what's more, even sin will not stop God's plan. Look at verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. 
Now, if you know the history of Israel after David, you know that it is filled with sinful kings, with kings that that, that would apply to right there. there. There are high points to be sure, but overall, the kings of Israel and Judah are sinful leaders, and their sinfulness results in God sending his people into exile. And scripture lays the blame for that tragic event on the sinfulness of the kings and leaders of Israel. Yet even that, even that, will not stop God's ultimate plan. After the promise that God will chasten the sinful king, we have this amazing promise of verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Sin is a serious problem, and that needs to be dealt with. But God, in his grace, promises David that neither his death nor the sinfulness of his descendants will stop the plan and promise of God. Because here's the thing. The grace of God is greater. It is greater than even sin and death. Solomon, the son of David, he he would fulfill a portion of this promise. He fulfills what we read in verse 13 where it says, He shall build a house for my name. That was Solomon. He built the great temple in Jerusalem. But the promise here is greater than even the great temple. It's greater than even what Solomon accomplished. God promised that David's throne would be established forever. Now again, thinking of the history of Israel, we might wonder how that could possibly be. Right? The people get sent into exile. The, the throne, the, the line of David seems to have a serious problem here. But it's true because in his wisdom, God never planned on his grace being extended only to one nation, but to the entire world. He had a bigger plan in mind. That one from the line of David would have an eternal throne greater than David could ever imagine. And it would come through a king like no other. Isaiah 9 states, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder." And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah 11 tells us that this king would be the shoot that comes from the stump of the line of Jesse, who is David's father. And to make sure we couldn't possibly miss who this is referring to, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. Genealogies are important, friends. We want to read them. And Matthew uses his genealogy to show us that this child, this king, is Jesus, the son of David. Today we celebrate Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus humbly rode into Jerusalem, the city of David. And what did the people shout as he rode past? Hosanna to the son 
of David. It's why the religious leaders were so angry. They knew the people were seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of this promise given to David so many years before. And Jesus accepts their praise, telling the leaders that even if the people were silent, the very rocks would cry out because the son of David has come. Now, what they couldn't have known is that the throne that Jesus would claim would be the cross. You see, God knew that people could not do what needed to be done. We could not save ourselves. And so God provided his own son from the line of David. And in his wisdom, he knew that we needed him to die the death we deserved. And in his humility, he did not come as a military or political leader, but as a child who would take up his throne by going to the cross for us. And in his grace, God sends his very own son, who, though he committed no iniquity, felt the rod of punishment and bore the weight of sin, though he committed no sin at all. And it is that moment that we begin our walk towards this Palm Sunday. We begin the final leg of our slow march to the cross where the King of Glory died for us. In so many ways, he is not the King we expected. We're the King we think we need, especially in times of challenge. We want the King who looks the part. But in God's humility his wisdom, and his grace, he knows better. We need a king who knows what it is to ride straight on to the cross, who knows what it is to suffer, bleed, and die, who knows what it is to feel utterly alone. And that is the king of glory, the son of David, who God promised to his servant David. And it is that King, Jesus, who walks with us all our days. Because in his grace, Jesus fulfills God's greater plan. Great David's greater son, Jesus. The fulfillment of the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. And in his grace, God shows us his glory in humbling himself to walk with his people. And in his wisdom, he provides not what his people think they want, but what he knows we need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of humility, wisdom, and grace. We pray, Lord, that you would today and all this week remind us of your love and your grace and how you acted in history to redeem us, to fulfill the promise you made to David in Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.